Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. Tonight being broadcast live as part of the Independence Premium Virtual Event Series. I'm your host, Vidushna Hantaraja, and I'm joined tonight by our Chief Football Writer of the Independent, Miguel Delaney, Senior Football Correspondent, Melissa Reddy, and Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley. Uh, Firstly, hello to all. And hello to our guests as well, those of you joining us for this special live show. You can ask questions throughout this event, and there's a QA and a button that you'll be able to find in your own Zoom links at the bottom of the screen, and you can submit any queries you have using that. If you want early access to our future live events, by the way, much like this one, as well as loads of other exclusive analysis and opinions from our sports team, then click this link in the podcast description and subscribe to Independent Premium for just £3 for the first three months. Now, on with the show. After this strangest conclusion to a season in history, we've had the strangest and shortest off-season as well. Just a matter of weeks after the 2019-20 Premier League campaign was wrapped up, the English top flight is set to commence once again with Fulham and Arsenal kicking us off for 2020-2021. Now, guys, uh, I suppose this has been a season to preview like no other as well. Clubs, managers, fans, journalists, league, league itself all having to adapt in these new and strange times at the moment at the moment everyone everything feels a little bit different and everyone as well um miguel why don't you start us off your big season preview will be live on the site tomorrow morning what are your general thoughts on how we've got back to this point and what we're about to see well i mean my overriding thought actually is how empty an opening day it feels i mean because i think i don't want to sound pat or um or kind of uh, sentimental here, but I think probably more than any other time in football, the opening day of the season is about the fans and the kind of sense of people after a long break returning and kind of usually in hopefully in summer sun um, to uh, you know to, to to old friends to a place they know well, but full of kind of new hope for the season. It's that kind of like the realities of the season having to end real. It's all about optimism. And yet, this weekend, the streets around, around the stadiums will be empty. Um, and while we could kind of... I think while everyone more or less happily accepted that for Project Restart, because it was about the game making do, this is kind of about what makes the game what it is and why it's such a shame. And, I, and, like, and given that football ultimately is about escapism, the fact that we have no fans is kind of like a, a brutal reminder of reality. So that's, that's why it's quite... So, so for I mean, take take what Liverpool leads tomorrow, obviously, which in normal circumstances would be such a huge game. Leads first first game, well, it is a huge game, but it was such a uh, such a huge event. Leads first game back in the Premier League, the Liverpool defending champions, first game of a new season as as champions, um, and it, it was put to Bielsa in his press conference today, and he basically said it's you know it's special to go to Anfield, but Anfield is not Anfield if it's not full. Um, and that, and it just does foster the sense of 
the sport as more of a business and less a communal experience. And the fixture list almost just like now, as much as a fixture list, it's a production line of uh, football matches and football content. And I, and, I, and I think that just because of what the build-up to a season usually is, and the first day usually is, that's kind of my overriding sense going into it. Melissa, you've been talking to a number of clubs, I suppose, as part of your way of approving the season. Um, kind of how's, how are they viewing it from, I suppose, I want to say professional point of view, but you know, regardless of what was laid out in front of them, they would have had to go along with you know, the season starting as early as it did with such a short pre-season. So how, how has the off-season been different for them and I suppose players as well? You're on mute, Melissa. <laughs> we still can't hear Melissa. We'll try and work on that. In the meantime, I might as well go to you, Mark, because I know your mic is working. Um, you're covering the Northwest, specifically Manchester United and Man City as well over the last season. They've done a great deal of, of business behind the scenes and I suppose in front of the cameras as well. Um, the seasons aren't starting uh, when everyone else is, though. Um, do you want to explain why that is, why they're starting with this delay and how it'll impact the start of their season? Yeah, well, it's pretty simple, really. I mean, uh, they were both involved in European competition as, as recently as, I don't know, like three weeks ago or something. Um, and that also means that their opponents this weekend, Burnley and Aston Villa, won't be playing um, because there's, there's this kind of mandatory ring fence 30-day rest period that teams are supposed to have between their last fixture in one season and another um, that, you know, the authorities, but also kind of unions would like to, would like to enforce. Um, the clubs haven't always been... I suppose, too keen to enforce that when they've been getting players back from World Cups and Euros and stuff, but they'd like to get them back early in, in those instances. But in this case, it affects them and it's, it's, it's on their watch. So they've, they've kind of enforced that. And I, I mean, will it affect them? I don't, I don't really think it will, um, at least not now. But the issue is that it's, it's one other game that you need to squeeze in to a very tight and very compact fixture schedule somewhere down the line. And with all the uncertainty that we have at the moment, um, even just this season starting, the amount of players that we've seen test positive in the last few weeks, both clubs, United and City, have had high-profile individuals test positive for coronavirus within the past two weeks, within the past fortnight. And, um, you know, that is a worry because we don't think what kind of postponements and, um, and what kind of decisions are going to need to be made. So I don't think it will necessarily affect them now, but perhaps in the future in a very uncertain future. Um, we'll see that later down the line. Mel, I think you're back with us now. Um, I suppose for a general overview of how the clubs and players are preparing for this, given that truncated off-season, um, you know, what have you been hearing in terms of, I suppose, their preparations and their expectations as well? Goodness, only dealing with all this technology since March. It's now September and still having glitches. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's amazing, actually, how many staff of clubs you speak to. And the um, feeling that Miguel has is pretty much what resonates there as well. Because when we needed to get last season back up and running, there was this overriding sense of it's going to be different it has to be different let's just get it finished however that needs to be and start the new season fresh again with normality and because we're starting the new season exactly how the old one ended 
there is a sense from staff and players that it's just not really, you know, that excitement that um, it, it doesn't feel like it's a new season at all. It feels like the last one has continued with the shortest break in between. And you're dealing with all the exact same circumstances, i.e. behind closed doors, biosecure, uh, the regular testing. In terms of how they've been preparing, um, all the managers so far have said they've never dealt with a situation like this in terms of the short amount of time to prime your squad, um, you know, the conditioning element of it. Uh, the mental element because they've not been able to recharge properly Um, and the amount of games also means that for clubs that have made multiple signings there's hardly a chance there's there's no real settling in period there's no grace window that you can give players have to come in and hit the ground running so there's all this extra expectation Um, one of the the key considerations at every club is how they are going to minimize injuries because they're at a high risk given the um, amount of games and how short and intense the season is um, for injuries. So there's been a lot of extra work um, in that regard into, um, you know, redeveloping recovery sessions and training itself uh, as to not overwork the players. And I think what you'll find the season is there won't be as much training. The games will effectively be the players' workouts. Just on that, that, actually. Sorry, mate, go on. Just on that, I I was doing the calculations, and if you're an international footballer, uh, then there is at least a feasibility in a way that's never been possible before that you will have a match every three days. There's never been a calendar like there's never been a calendar congested at this, um, which of course is complicated by Euro 2012 or sorry Euro 2020 or 2021. I'm, I'm all over the place with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I suppose the, the, the one thing is most players won't have to face that schedule either a because this this the fixture list has caused them some sort of breakdown or necessitate a rest or b or more likely the calendar basically totally erodes any, any team's ability to fight on multiple fronts. Mm. And, and in that sense, I do, it's why squad depth could be the most influential factor this season, more than anything else. Well, yeah, I, I suppose there's um, an element of duty of care involved in there as well. And, and while the clubs can do their bit, it feels like the owners should be on the Premier League as well. Um, Migs, you spoke to Richard Masters earlier this week. Is there any kind of inkling that the Premier League are ready to, I suppose, make some swift changes, whether that be ready from a postponement to even just like an impromptu week off, given how mad the schedule is? Um, well, I mean, they, they've already tried to kind of incorporate these things into, into fixtures, like stuff like fixture list A, or like there's, I think, say, match week 18 as match week 18A and match week 18. So they're going to try and split some teams and, and incorporate uh, some breaks. Uh, with Masters, what we mostly spoke about, I suppose, was the return of fans, um, as well as the, uh, the, the, the Newcastle United issue. And of course, the... Um, the Chinese contract. I mean, with the, with the clubs, it is just a case of um, like adapting to what they've got in front of them. Well, I mean, on the fans, given that you mentioned it, um, where are we at right now? Because that seems to be the, the biggest issue. You know, like, obviously, the it's been announced that all the games through September will be put live on TV, whether that's Sky Sports, BBC, Amazon, 
uh, BT Sport. Um, but in terms of getting to the ground, where are we? Because of presumably because of different venue sizes and I suppose local lockdowns across the country. It's uh, you know it's very much seems like a case by case basis. So I was told yesterday that given well, 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 Master himself said that um, we, they're very much dependent on governments and they have to be guided by that and they are ready and, ready and able to go as soon as they get to go ahead. Uh, I was separately told uh, by a source that I wouldn't expect anything until 2021. Just by, because, because the government uh, delayed yesterday or because they put it off, just because these things usually don't just last several weeks but you have to think of them as a block of time. So I would be surprised if we had fans back in stadiums before 2021. But clubs are obviously, they're, I mean, Spurs were, were trying to get fans in this weekend. Uh, a lot of the big clubs have got, got sophisticated plans to get supporters back. Um, so maybe there will be a certain amount of pressure there, maybe. But uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to have to wait a few months. I think one of the, the issues is that government want fans back into stadiums as well. Um, the culture secretary, Oliver Dalden, was saying they're still planning for the best and looking at that October window as a point to get some fans in. And they were saying by Christmas, they hope that they can get close to the normal capacity. And that sounds hugely optimistic um, to me. I, I would likely hinge on, on what Miguel is saying, that we're likely to see fans back in semi-properly, so it's a, a percentage probably next season. But the will is there for some fans to be let in from October. We've seen some pilot events uh, brighten at the Amex with 2,500 people and the test events for the rest of this month will be limited to 1,000 people. Now, one of the, the things Richard Masters said was that getting fans back in is the Premier League's key consideration, key concern, because there's £700 million that stood to be lost from the clubs if they cannot get that matchday revenue. And given the financial impact of last season, they cannot foresee going the entire campaign without a workable solution for matchday revenue. Well, I might um, ask this next one to to you three, and you can fight amongst yourselves to answer it because I don't know if there's a set set answer for this. But it, it's a question that comes from our audience um, in the form of Michael Wickham asking, "What provisions, pardon me, have been made for breaches like we've seen in Iceland and Aberdeen?" Um, obviously, Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood got themselves into a spot of bother when they were banished from England duty this week. While breaches from Celtic and Aberdeen players in Scotland earlier this season saw matches in the Scottish Premiership postponed um before we go on to greenwood and foden is there anything in place is there beyond kind of hammering the message home to the players that of how important this is is there you know i suppose you know a two-week fine a, a two-game ban where, where are we at with this uh, nothing specific i've heard bar that each club would be on them to discipline the players and as, as they see fit which would be quite harshly if it meant games getting postponed because they'd want to make an example of them but it's not like the, i haven't heard of any of the premier league setting any rules yeah, similar. I've heard it's just club by club um, and it's like, you know, England will deal with Greenwood and Foden. Um, but it is, the onus has been placed on the clubs in terms of everything, even the testing process and stuff, getting your uh, facilities, you know, putting the one-way system in place, making sure everything's uh, sanitized properly, limiting your workforce, 
all that stuff. And the clubs have been so responsible and so much money and effort has been put into this. So every time there is an individual breach, it lets down the collective so badly. But that is an interesting question. And I wonder if we will see actually a standardized policy being put into place because that would make sense. So, you know, if you break a rule that impacts the league, then everybody's suffering the same sort of punishment. I just think, just to come in, I think on, on Greenwood and Foden, they obviously play for two Manchester clubs. I thought the, the response to that from both clubs was interesting. Uh, not to really compare the two together, but City were very, very hard on Foden in the statement. And I think that is an indication of just how seriously clubs are going to take this. Um, I think you saw the reference there about Scotland when it's Celtic and their player. You know, the clubs are coming down hard on this. And even though there's a willingness to protect them from especially the younger ones like Greenwood and Foden because they're going to make mistakes it happens, like Gareth Southgate said this week. This is still something that clubs need to need to look at and, um, and and that they are taking especially seriously and they're not going to take any nonsense over it, especially in their public positions as well. Well, beyond, I suppose, behavioural issues that might arise, uh, there's obviously the prospect potentially of a second wave as well. Um, this question comes in from Mohamed Kareem. How closely are the Premier League working with the government over plans of a second for a second wave, pardon me. Uh, could the season end up being over before it starts? Now, obviously, yeah. that seems kind of unlikely, but you get the point. So, this is one thing Master specifically mentioned yesterday. I almost made a point in it. Obviously, when when they went in, one of the big things basically about Project Restart, or really not about Project Restart, but the postponement of football for for four months, was that there never any pre. They, they didn't they didn't actually have the contingency plan or the rules set in place to deal with the situation. Now they have basically institutionalized it almost and um, it, it put into the Premier League rules our curtailment as a last resort. So it'll be the last possible solution. Uh, but, it, but it now is, is part of the uh, Premier League regulations. Cool. Well, that seems like a good time as any to move on to actual on-field matters. And we're going to start at the top of the table with Liverpool as the runaway leaders last campaign, claiming a first league title more than 30 years. There was a post-lockdown wobble, but I think it's fair to say that started once the title was secured. Melissa, what's the latest with the Reds? They've been at work in Austria. It looked a bit sluggish in the Community Shield defeat to Arsenal, but where are they at heading into the opening weekend in that fixture against Leeds United? They have done minimal business. They've only brought in cover for Andy Robertson is le- at left back. Klopp has said he'll be quite patient in the window, which is not an approach that supporters appreciate very much, especially when rivals are strengthening to the extent um, that Chelsea have, especially. But I really think Liverpool, because there is such significant interest in Thiago and because he will give them a different dimension, And I know there's an understanding that opposition will try and shut down the fullbacks who are so instrumental to Liverpool's uh, play, who are their playmakers, in effect. Um, And adding Thiago would change that, would lead to an evolution. And every season under Klopp, there has been some sort of evolution which has got them closer to the title and then fundamentally got them over the line. And now to go back to back, I think they see the need to continue that trend. Um, I also think they're light at centre-back. Dejan Lovren's gone. 
Joel Matip and Joe Gomez both struggle with injuries. You don't really want to lose Fabinho and, and put him in the back line because you're losing one of the best defensive midfielders in the game. And I think they're a, a, a rapid forward short, somebody who helps their transition game just to give um, Mo Salah, Sadio Mane and Roberto Firmino a breather. Uh, more of a stylistic fit than than Divock Origi and, and some of the other options. So that's where I think they can improve in the market. Um, we know Ginny Wijnaldum's future is up in the air, like Thiago at Bayern. He's in the last year of his contract. Ronald Koeman wants him to um, you know, lead the rebuild of Barcelona, just add some tactical flexibility and some steel to their midfield. Um, and those the futures of those two players seem interlinked but in my opinion I still think the ideal solution for Liverpool would be to keep Genie, add Thiago, sell some of the fringe players um, in that department and yeah go again. Um, I think the big thing for them is they feel that they're in, at an advantage because the squad is so settled uh, the mentality is so strong and for them it's just rolling on uh, whereas I think they foresee Chelsea probably having issues integrating so many players at once in a short space of time uh, so there's confidence at Anfield but I don't think any team has ever uh, done three consecutive seasons at 90 points and if perceived wisdom is that 90 points wins you the title these days I think it's a very very tall ask well Migs you're big on the uh, on the numbers and kind of how successful teams are over the course of seasons um, and just by the way Mel you inadvertently answered all of Simon Pestana's questions so Simon I didn't get to ask it directly but thank you very much for that um, yeah Migs wh- where are you at with with this iteration of, of Liverpool, I know on previous podcasts you've talked about how important age profiles are and people peaking at the right time and teams together peaking at the right, at the right time. Mel's obviously outlined some of the areas where they're looking a little bit, not shaky, but I suppose um, under-resourced. Kind of, where do you see them this season? So the theme in the last three years, I suppose, has been uh, one of you both, uh, City and Liverpool, performing to a level beyond anyone else. Um, I think that's they're, they're both going to drop off. Um, I was thinking. I, I think like do, as with City, if Liverpool played any team in in their kind of in their optimum conditions on any given day, like with no other external factors, they're superb. So the exact same applies to City. Uh, but obviously, there are a whole lot of factors going to affect that. Um, w- one of them is, I suppose, the the potential residual effect of three years of playing at a maximum, especially as we go into this most conject- congested of seasons. Uh, I, I think it could be... I, I th- now, we did say this last season, but <laughs> the longer the question goes on, the more likely is the answer will be true. Um, I, I, think our, I think it's impossible for them to quite sustain that level. And we did see a bit of a drop-off, certainly compare, compared to January 2019 to February 2020. There, there was a drop-off to that. And then there's the issue of just being able to offer something different, both because teams adapt to you a bit and just to freshen things up. And I suppose, like, I mean, if you want to make the old, like, I know it almost feels a cliche in itself at this point, but to reference the person who knew more about winning repeat titles than anyone else, um, Ferguson, I 
don't think he ever went longer. I was actually calculating this earlier. He never went longer than one season without buying a player who could go immediately into the first team. Now, the one debate about that might be 94 with, when he signed David May, although he did eventually go into the team and started as a right back. Uh, but 94 or 95 would be the only time comparable to these two summers at Liverpool where they haven't yet bought a first team player. And I do think that could cost me. It's, it's why I almost think, even although when, when Alan has been such a good player for Liverpool, I, I'm aware of the debate about him. I think the debate is nonsense. Um, but even though he's been so good, I, I think there is merit in, say, exchanging him almost for Thiago, just because it offers something different. And also because of Thiago, just, he will elevate the overall uh, quality of your squad. Uh, and then with City, there are similar questions. Uh, but the biggest question there is that Guardiola is facing into the unknown, really. So, so, I mean, it's actually quite rare to have this for a manager who's now who's been so long and seen as probably the best in the world, who's had kind of such an aura around him. Yet we have absolutely no idea how he's going to adapt to a fifth season at one club. And, and that's a bigger question, it seems, because it revolves around ideas like whether players get sick of his intensity. Something that has been said about Jose Mourinho as well, and it is a big issue. But then also his capacity for refreshing a team. Because this City squad is relatively old now. Well, you mentioned Liverpool there. Um, Tobias Lansfried asks, are they one of the many examples of how coronavirus has impacted the transfer window? Yes. Uh, and, and there has been, uh, I think there's been a few disparate effects. Um, of course, the, the biggest on the other side is Chelsea, who, having not, having not spent for two windows, they had a huge uh, cash reserves. But they didn't just have those cash reserves. Coronavirus meant their money was even more powerful. And probably at its most influential, I mean, it, I mean in absolute terms, it's, um, they've spent more than any other summer of Roman Abramovich's uh, ownership, but of course, I, I, you know, when, when you subject subject that to uh, inflation, it doesn't quite mean the same. I mean, in real terms, it felt like they they spent much more in two thousand three, two thousand four. But this could be uh, just as effective. Then the other the other side, I suppose, is maybe teams investigating different types of deals. They've had to kind of uh, adjust to different um, targets. I mean, Manchester United certainly have had to be a little bit more constrained. Um, I think had had we not had coronavirus. They would have been much more abrasive this summer, United. Rich, uh, I'm going to bring you in for Manchester City. They were Liverpool's closest challenges in a, in a very loose sense, that phrase. Um, the last time we saw them, they were tumbling out of the Champions League at the hands of Leon. They've added a couple of new faces in Ferran Torres, the winger, and Nathan Ake in defence. Um, notably not Lionel Messi, though, which is a shame. Um, that At least it dominated um, or gave us something to write about for a week or so. Um, but do they need more, you know, beyond the high-profile signing that would have been Messi? Well, I was off the week that all that Messi stuff happened, so that was a good week to take off on, on the Manchester beat. Um, so I avoided all that, thankfully. Uh, do they need anybody else? Well, I think the, look, putting Messi to one side, the priority was always another centre-half and like an elite quality one and, and the name that everybody would have seen linked um, for a long time now is, is Caldu Kulabali and Napoli. Um, pro- progress has been pretty slow on that front but I would still expect I, I think I, I think you would still say that they're confident they'll be able to get some kind of deal in that in that region across um, I think with them like Miguel's touched on a lot of it there but I, I was always saying last season that while I think that Liverpool have a higher floor if you like City have a much higher ceiling 
Um, the only issue is that that ceiling is full of cracks or whatever, it's leaking or whatever, however you want to extend this terrible metaphor. It felt like, yes, they can reach these, these extremely high levels, but there's other times where they just, they just collapse. And like we saw that, we saw that precisely in Lisbon against Leon. Um, so I suppose, would you ask, does signing that one centre half, that finally getting a, a replacement for Vincent Company, would that solve those problems that we saw last season? I think in a way, maybe, um, because that would then allow, it would allow you to put Fernandinho back into, back into the base of midfield. Um, then the press that they're having so many problems with last season in an attacking and a defensive set, uh, sense, those transitions, they would, they would work a bit better, you'd imagine, then. But uh, Miguel's touching it, like I say, there's, there's a huge squad rebuild that needs to be done at City. And whether you can do that, at the point where whether you can replace Fernandinho, whether you can replace Sergio Aguero, David Silva's already gone. Yes, Foden's coming through, but whether you can do that in a season that is the final one on Pep Guardiola's contract, let's remember, you can't still sell the Guardiola project to transfer targets. That's a huge problem that they've got. And we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to predictions and stuff like that later and we'll pick who we think is going to win the title. I find it really difficult this season because I, I feel like there's not been that huge gap between seasons. There's not been a lot of time for clubs to really, you know, impress themselves upon the market. And you're left in the feeling that, yes, Liverpool may have regressed a little bit, but City may regress somewhat too. And it, it almost leaves us back where we started. Is Guardiola looking for anything in particular? Like you mentioned Koulibaly there. Is that, is that the sole kind of area, I suppose, that he's looking to, to reinforce? That's always been the priority. I, I think, like, ideally, um, they would like it if they could answer the, pro the question that's been left back for so long, even though they've spent so much money on fullbacks over the past couple of years. If, if they could find a solid option there and potentially from somewhere else in the market, that would be, that would be nice. Um, possibly another forward. Uh, but really, I, I think that... The failure to replace company last season was exacerbated by injury, but that was viewed both internally and externally as a huge reason why they just simply weren't at the level and they, they finished ultimately 18 points behind Liverpool. So that is still the priority. And they, they aren't as affected by COVID in the market as some other clubs like we've been discussing, um, simply because of the nature of, of the project. Um, but... Uh, I would I would still be surprised if there was too many more additions. I, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't say that I expect them. Well, there were plenty of new additions in West London, and Miguel, you spoke about how Chelsea were able to uh, spend what is close to two hundred million now. Might have just ticked over that as well for this transfer window, or certainly for this season. Um, what impact do you think the spending will have? I suppose on the face of it, there'll be a betting in period, but. It's also kind of upping the ante on Lampard to to really do something with this squad of players, having had something of a free hit last year. Yeah, now it's the opposite of a free hit because now there's a whole lot of expectation and there's no excuses because he's basically he's been given the strongest squad, maybe the strongest squad in European football given the sheer depth of it. Um, the only the only remaining flaw you say is goalkeeper, although they, they plan to address that. Maybe another centre half. But when you look at like when, when you do one of those things where you basically set out the best eleven and set out the the secondary and ter tertiary options after it, it's just absolutely stacked in a way no one else is. And I, I, as I said at the top, I think that's going to be 
more influential than anything else this season just because of how squads are going to be stretched. Now, then the, other, the, the next most important factor, of course, is the use of squads. And this is a big question because I'm still something of a Lampard sceptic. Um, I don't have that much faith, but this is what we see. And I, I suppose the wider question, I mean, it's going to be interesting how Chelsea see the season and what Abramovich and the kind of club hierarchy would expect. You would think he needs to win a trophy and at the very least challenge for the title. Um, I suppose as regards Lampard's medium-term future will depend on progress. But, uh, but, but very suddenly, the, kind of, the demands have been raised. Wow, so you reckon gone by December? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea, who slumped to 12th yesterday, sacked Frank Lampard. No. <laughs> Get it prepped. Sheffield United, of course, were last season's big overachievers. They flirted with European football before finishing comfortably in the top half. A question that's come in for, from Alan O'Grady. What teams do you think will follow their footsteps this year and overachieve? And conversely, do you see any standout underachievers in that 20? Uh, Melissa, I'll go to you first on this. Hmm. That's interesting. I saw a few people doing these and saying Burnley would finish like eighth or something, which I thought was a little bit... <laughs> A little bit too optimistic. Um, and I saw, I saw people predicting that they go down as well. So I feel like they've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, you just, you never know. Um, it's so difficult to kind of assess what shape squads are going to be in just because of how weird the situation is now, both in a, a physical sense, in a motivational sense, psychologically. Um, I would suspect that teams that were there and thereabouts would do well again so your Wolves although I don't know if that would surprise anyone Wolves doing well um I think Sheffield just by virtue of their tactical underpinnings and just the fact that they have such a clear identity will do well again perhaps not as well um because as Miguel said you have to be constantly evolving because teams are able to work you out over an extended period of time. Um, I, I'm very interested to see how, how Leeds get on and how Leeds deal with the season because I think we touched on it there. You know, returning to the Premier League is is massive, like gigantic. But returning to this kind of Premier League where you don't have the enthusiasm of your home and away crowd behind you... Um, where the feeling's so different, where you have to coax the performances out of yourself, basically. Um, I, I, I want to see, yeah, how they're going to deal with it. Um, I would, I would just to speak up for Burnley, <laughs> given, given they're getting a lot of stick here, or, well, from some quarters. I, I mean, they finished actually level on points with Sheffield United last year, and I think sometimes we forget, you know, just, just. You, we take for granted sometimes that clubs come up into the Premier League and they stick around for a while. Yeah. And they do it They do it despite very limited resources. And, you know, Burnley, we talk about clear identities and clear ideas about what they are. Burnley have certainly got that and they've got a better idea of that than the likes of Newcastle or Everton or a lot of other bigger clubs that, that finish below them in the table. So it's not really overachievement, but like if they finished, I think they finished 10th and if they finished 10th again, you've got to say that that's, 
<laughs> that if it wasn't for Sean Dyche and it wasn't for the project that's in place there, then um, then they wouldn't be in that position. And then other than that, I think I, I, I'm interested to see how Southampton get on because I thought they were they were really good in um, in the restart and Hasenholt's had a lot of time now to, to bed those ideas in and it looks like they have bedded in. And they've got players like uh, Gineppo and uh, Che Adams who who struggled once they came last summer, but they looked to be really settling down. So um, they were really bad at, at home, weren't they? I think they had like the, one of the worst home records in the league, so need to improve there. But they're one that I think could possibly push to the lofty heights of eighth or whatever the ceiling is on what teams can achieve in the, in the Premier League these days. Who's going to be brave enough to predict Sheffield United to go down? It's going to be you, isn't it, Miguel? No, 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 but if you really want to go there as well, Leeds. Leeds and Sheffield United. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. I don't think so. Yeah, that's at Miguel Delaney. Actually, no, you almost certainly certainly know his Twitter handle, given his mentions. (laughs) Um, Someone's asked in the... um, Thank you for your Q&A questions, by the way. Someone's asked, can Spurs be optimistic in getting into the top four under Jose Mourinho? Under Amazon Prime's Jose Mourinho, what do we reckon? Not for me. I, I think top four is a bit of a stretch, but I'm a little bit more optimistic on them than I would have been. I don't know than I was once we went into lockdown. Maybe I think I think once during the restart they actually began to look a lot like a Mourinho team, and we can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it does bring a certain level of defensive stability. Um, so I would. Look, I, I think maybe fifth, but whether that's even good enough, whether that's what they what they would want, a return that they would want from this season, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I, I think they may be the, the best of the rest outside last season's top four. How much of that is scoped by all or nothing? Because I suddenly am a Mourinho believer again. And I'm, I'm, I'm drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm eating up that propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> You sucked in by something specifically designed to make them look as good as possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I was all, all over Tiger King as well. This is no different. Um, <laughs> uh, Melissa, we're going to talk about Everton now. Um, they've spent pretty big. In fact, they've spent pretty big over the last few years. I think it's from the, from 2016. They spent about 500 million on transfers, and more recently, that includes Alan from. Napoli, Abdullah Decore from Watford, and the most eye-catching of all, James Rodriguez. Um, at the risk of setting fire to your Twitter mentions, <clears throat> do you think it will make a difference? Those are three very good players. I mean, Everton's midfield were the area they needed to strengthen the most. It was overrun too often, laboured too often. Um, Alan for Napoli was immense in in Champions League games that I watched him in. A really good player. Decore, they've been after for quite a while. And actually, a lot of top European clubs had been looking at him. He was on the shortlist for a lot of them. So so that's a good move. And obviously, Rodriguez comes in because of his personal relationship with Ancelotti, which means if if somebody can get the best out of him, it's probably you'd back Carlo um, and with the player having highlighted that you you feel that mentally there's already one kind of battle won in that regard he believes in the manager manager believes in him you know there's like this mutual sense that yeah 
we're going to work really well together. I think the issue is, and I, I spoke to um, someone who works in recruitment um, in the Premier League the other day, and he said, one of the biggest issues around transfers is people get hooked on the names involved. And, you know, a good player is a good player, but it's how you utilize players. And he said, if you had to drop a list, of every player that was, you know, ridiculously good, came to the Premier League and flopped or disappointed or whatever, or was essentially was misused. And I mean, you know, Critch would have covered quite a few of them in his time uh, on the on the United beat, uh, Memphis Depay. Like, how much um, excitement was there around Depay, uh, Di Maria, Di Maria. like? Yeah, you can just like rattle off names. Um, and the issue is how well they adjust to the demands of English football. And that's not to say English football is, is something special or unique. It's just, it's different. Um, everything about it is different. How they settle to their surroundings, how they're infused within the team, um, what their responsibilities are like. Uh, uh, and oftentimes, it, it really doesn't matter how good a like what their own abilities are, what the players' abilities are. It's so often everything else can count more. Um, I think one of Everton's uh, big issues last season was they improved without the ball. They had more defensive discipline and more positional discipline, uh, but they still lacked a creative edge, uh, a decisiveness and a surety about themselves. And I mean, these signings can offer that. But like I say, it's just putting it all together. You, It's great having all the parts. You still have to make all the parts fit. Very much sounds like the indie sport team there. Um, we'll move on <laughs> to, the, to the bottom of the table now. Um, three promoted sides, West Brom, Fulham, and most intriguingly of all, Leeds United have made the jump up to the top tier. Chris, I'm going to throw it to you after your piece today where you've um, lauded a man alongside Marcelo Bielsa, um, Victor Orta, this week, talking about how much credit he deserves. Um, Chris Bruce has messaged, uh, well, rather asked a question in the Q&A. Um, and I'm going to go for the second part of your question, Bruce, because he talks about, well, he asks about, is there a anti-Leeds bias in the press? Now, I mean, very much not so, given what you're about to tell us, Critch, because um, talk to us a bit about the piece that you've written this week. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I feel like Leeds are certainly getting a lot more attention than the other promoted clubs, and there's a good reason for that because of the history of um, and, and the 16-year wait. Um, yeah, no, no I've, I've done a piece about just a look. It's just a kind of a quick profile thing about Victor Orta because, you know, we've, we all read so much about Bielsa, but um, the guy he works with is a, is a fellow kind of uh, football obsessive. Um, he was... He did a speech at the end of end of season dinner actually, where he took the played the Rothmans football yearbook and was and, and then had a speech about how when he was a teenager he couldn't afford the Rothmans football yearbook until he started cleaning swimming pools and then um, <laughs> he had to clean swimming pools all summer to basically get this book and then he, he read it all day all the time and he was actually kind of like tearing up and breaking up while he was thinking about his name in the Rothmans year, football yearbook as it is now because they've got promoted. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an interesting character as well because, like, he's he's people will be familiar to, with him. He was um, the director of football at Middlesbrough when they came up a few years ago, and that ended in total disaster. They got relegated 
first season back and he departed the club and, and the chairman was basically blaming the cr- recruitment there for, for the fact that they'd gone straight back down. Um, and yeah, no, he hasn't hasn't been absolutely perfect at Leeds either on the recruitment side. There's a, a lot of players came in the first season. Um, very few of them are still there. But once Bielsa's come in as well, um, that has improved. And and if anything, he's the he's the man responsible for Bielsa being at the club. He's he's responsible for the biggest signing of all. It was him who tried to get him before when he'd worked with uh, Monchi, who people be familiar with at Seville and Zenit St. Petersburg as well. He tried and he'd failed. And he tried again, third time lucky. And it's the best signing that Leeds have made in 16 years. Uh, and, you know, the fact that these two kind of, you know, football obsessives, like I say, have um, and it, it came together for what was, in my opinion, probably the most ambitious, quite a risky appointment as well that we've seen in English football in recent years. And yet it's brought them to the, it's brought them to the Premier League. And it's, it's just adds another little layer of intrigue to what I think a lot of people, to come back to uh, the question in the chat, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of people are very interested to see how Leeds do this year. And there's a lot of, there's just a lot of intrigue about them because I think, <laughs> you know, I cover United and even among United supporters, I think there's a sense that, okay, it wasn't funny anymore. Just get back up into the Premier League so we can start playing again and, you know, like, and renew those rivalries. So, yeah, like I say, a lot of excitement, a lot of intrigue. And I think, personally, they've, they're, they're solid enough defensively and we know how good they are going forward. I think, I think the predictions of a mid-table finish aren't going to be too far wrong and, yeah, we'll see them land around there. Without willing to um, do down the other teams in the Premier League, uh, there was kind of a degree of homogeneity that Leeds are breaking, and, and pu- I suppose purely because of Bielsa and just how fascinating a character he is. Um, Miguel, you know his career inside out. What are we going to expect from him? A top 10 finish? Is he going to walk away in November in the Ball of Flames? What have we, um, what have we got in store? Miguel relegated them, remember? <laughs> this is true, actually, yeah. yeah. I don't think they go down. But it's because we know that career so well, that uh, <laughs> anything can happen. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean that flippantly or you use it as a cliche. It's because he is, in some ways, the most unpredictable manager possible, given, given you, know, <laughs> you know, I remember when they came up, when it was confirmed they came up in July, I was talking to a few other uh, football journalist colleagues, and we're kind of like, you know, speculating. It was in jest, but not completely in jest about like, wouldn't it be so Bielsa now? They, they come back up and say, we were just talking about hypothetical examples. Say the club tried to use the new Premier League money to bring in players that he feels shouldn't go in ahead of kind of like some of, the, some of these loyal players that have come up with him. And he walks out in principle. I mean, this is the sort of figure we're talking about. Um, also the fact that uh, some people in Argentina have been a little bit embittered about it's not exactly a career that's just been uniform success. Um, there have been some bad patches, not least with Argentina, at the, at the highest level he's managed, and even a fall-off at Athletic Bilbao. Um, of course, most of it has been progressive, impressive management, which is why you would lean on, or you, you would lean towards the idea of Leeds finishing top half and entrancing the Premier League. Um, but I, I wouldn't actually rule out relegation or a tough season that readily yeah fellas well melissa um fulham are back after a year away hoping not to make the same mistakes as they did last time around 
do we think they'll do it? There's something a little bit different this time around. They do seem a bit more solid. And, and what do you make of Scott Parker and how he'll cope with a full Premier League season to have a go at? I think they will have grown and learnt and sort of eradicated maybe the, the naivety and the sense of just expecting everything to go their way because they had spent so much and planned it so or planned it out so well. Um, things don't happen no matter how much you try to design things in the Premier League. It, it doesn't all go your way. Um, I think Scott Parker's been quite impressive and I think everything that they'd learned from their previous experience will stand them in good stead and yet still there's quite a few question marks for me. There's there's something that, that doesn't really convince me yet and whether it's because I'm, you know, you say they're, they're a little bit more steely, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced on that. Um, like I said, it's so, I've been asked to do so many predictions and asked to call the season so many times. And even when I speak to clubs, um, and when I speak to people involved in the recruitment, uh, you know, spending like big money, making all these decisions on players, they don't have a guarantee or certainty or even, I think all teams are confident and optimistic and stuff like that. I think you kind of have to be. But in terms of actually telling you what they what they definitely think will happen, uh, beyond expecting Liverpool and Man City to be the two that are jostling at the top, no one really knows for certain. Well, West Brom uh, are the third promoted side are coming up in second place in the championship behind Leeds. Um, their business has been pretty under the radar, although they did get... Grady Diangana uh, from West Ham, which seemed to cause quite a few headlines down south or in East London than it did in the Midlands. Um, they're also looking, well, they look a bit short of goals, and they're also looking at Carl and Grant forward at Huddersfield. Critch, how do you reckon they'll go about their business in the Premier League? Um, I think that some of, some of the momentum's kind of dropped out of West Brom a little bit because of the way they finished the season. They, they started like, you know, a freight train, like, for Christmas, I think they were on like on for a hundred points or something like that by Christmas. And to be fair, I, I, they, I think I'm right in saying that from like September they were never outside of the top two. But just the way it ended, where even like Billich in the end was kind of conceding defeat, if you like, uh, on that penultimate weekend when they lost and, and they gave Brentford the opportunity to, to overtake them. Um, it, it does feel like some of that initial buzz has been kind of just eat away a little bit and that's maybe informing a few of the a few of the predictions at the same time I you know I, I like put out a league table before I like wrote one down just trying to figure it out so I could get my predictions in my head and, and I still had them second bottom above Fulham because like you say they're, they're struggling really for for somebody up front I think they've got three strikers on the books it's Charlie Austin Hal Robson Carney um, and Zahore and you know that that isn't really Premier League standard I don't think so if they can do some business there um, potentially uh, but you know uh, you just feel like they're going to be one of the three worst teams in the division to be honest because 
because of the way it kind of petered out towards the end of last season. And there's still a, a lot of questions there. I, you know, if, they, if they're going to stay up, they're going to have to need things from Pereira, who they've managed to get. They managed to make his loan permanent. And they, they got that for like £8 million, having already agreed the fee. So that's, that's a good deal. And we may look back on that if they do stay up. I think we could look back on that as probably one of the signings of the season, even though it was kind of agreed uh, a season prior. And obviously, Dean Garner as well. There's a lot of talent there. And West Ham are very, well, the players at least are quite aggrieved to have lost him. But no, I, I think that's going to be, I think it's going to be tough for them. And I, they're one of my three that I've got going down, to be honest. Well, you mentioned Brentford there and I suppose the, the need for goals. Aston Villa have reinforced their front line when they broke their club record to sign Ollie Watkins from Brentford. Um, and the reason I bring them up is because obviously they escaped by the skin of their teeth in the 2019-20 season, but also we've got a question here from Christopher Lynch asking if they can, repu- or rather asking our panel if we think the that Aston Villa could reproduce their form from those final four games into a longer stretch over the next season. Um, Migs, what do you think about that? Um, oh, sorry, I've just seen that. I've just seen a message about my life, which I should probably turn up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what happened to you? Are you having doing this event by candlelight? <laughs> um, Turning on the romance. So, uh, in, in terms of Villa, um, the interesting thing there that Smith was actually considered at risk before um, before lockdown, basically, and then obviously managed to turn around. Probably has enough credit in the bank, but if they start badly, they could be one of those clubs that makes a change. Um, I in my predictions I haven't had them go down I think they'll have enough I think he's a good manager and I think the hope is that they've signed better this summer than uh, last summer yeah I think on I think you're going to turn on your light I think um, (laughs) that I think that they actually really impressed me and I think a lot of people uh, post post restart obviously they survived but the issue with them pre pre uh, lockdown, <laughs> I'm always getting those two things confused. The issue with them pre lockdown was that they were just conceding a lot of goals um, defensively. It was all over the place. And afterwards, if you even look at goals conceded, like even underlying numbers and stuff like that, he really shored it up. And he did he did an interview on the on the club website, I think, a few weeks ago, where he was actually referencing all these advanced statistics and metrics that he'd been looking at to try and improve the defense and, and get that sorted. And, you know, for them and for quite a, a lot of other clubs, like I'm thinking of Newcastle and Southampton, like we mentioned before, and these teams that kind of almost turned themselves around in that restart period and, and looked different from what came before. The question is whether they can extend that into this now, because I suppose, <laughs> I don't know if I'm right in saying this, but I guess the gap between the end of last season and the start of this one has been shorter even than it was between the lockdown and the restart. So. There's the, you think that there might still be that little bit of continuity there, and yeah, I like in my predictions, like Miguel, I haven't had them going down, and if they can learn the lessons that they learn and, and retain that knowledge from the restart, then hopefully they'll be okay. Migs, I feel like I've I've got to ask you this question because last season you wrote um, a big piece about the state of football and the state of super clubs, and it has been something in particular that you've hammered, and because we've got a question here from Philip Peacock. And also off the back of Critch mentioning so many teams who would be just happy to still be in the league, let alone do anything worthwhile. Philip Peacock asks, what is the point of a league where the measure of success for most clubs is not getting relegated? 
yeah, it's absolutely depressing. <laughs> um, and I, it was something I touched on, or something I was thinking of when I was writing my preview piece of the Big C, and, and this whole idea that this is, this is the one stage of the year where the reality of football doesn't intervene, where there is hope, well, well, well maybe, uh, until suddenly the game starts and we, all those brutal truths assert themselves. Um, I think football is in a bad place in that regard. Uh, I think the effects of COVID could only serve to make it worse, even though it could have been an opportunity to make it better. Um, but in saying that, I think, and I think we have had some evidence of this, what clubs can do in that situation or what they should at least be doing is, I suppose, try to put on a bit of a show. And I remember, I remember the last time West Brom were in the Premier League, it was one of the big debates that you know, the fans are just absolutely sick of this calculated, almost mathematical football from Pulis uh, that was just almost just about consolidation, but even by then run its course. Whereas, it, so I think in this kind of environment where there are so many ceilings, the best a club can do is basically to try to try and play the best and most entertaining football possible. And that I think that is becoming more important. And it's also having a financial value because it will make clubs more attractive. They have a, it's, it's, I mean, and this is the way clubs are looking at it these days. It becomes part of the brand. It becomes what they sell themselves with. Um, and, and I mean, maybe that could be one minor positive in a situation, I think, which has a lot of negatives for football. Yeah, well said. I mean, has on the running order here me asking for your predictions from the three of you. We basically, I think we've relegated five teams. We haven't quite decided on the champion. Um, but I suppose, let, I mean, let's start with the league winner. Who have we got? Melissa, you first. It's going to be between City and Liverpool. I didn't I, ask I for between, I asked for a winner. <laughs> Liverpool going back to back. Liverpool back to back. Critch, where's your, where's your money at? Um, I think it'll be a three-horse race and the points total will be a lot lower than last season. Um, and I think City will win it. And Biggs, lastly from you? Uh, I have gone for City on my predictions. I don't say that with any great confidence. I think it will be close to three-horse race. Maybe Chelsea a little bit behind. Uh, I would have said Chelsea to win it if they had a better, more experienced manager. Well, well, well. Um, what about the top four? I suppose we're going to assume that. Well, let, let's for the for the sake of um, ease of listening. I suppose let's assume Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea are your top three. Who is that fourth side coming in for that Champions League spot? Arsenal, United. Arsenal, United. Critch. Yeah, United. I'm right. Two votes for United. We didn't actually speak about United, but very quickly, Donny Van der Beek coming in there and. Um, I suppose out of nowhere, given that the Jadon Sancho thing was running on. Um, does that make them legitimate top four contenders then, Critch? Does, does Van der Beek make them yeah. top four contenders? Um, I think they were top four contenders anyway. I don't, I, but I think the issue with Van der Beek is that, for me, and for I think a lot of other people, he doesn't necessarily improve on what was already there, which, to be fair to Solskjaer and to be fair to United... The biggest criticism that came out of the, the exit from the Europa League a few weeks ago was that he doesn't have the squad depth that's available to him. Uh, he doesn't have options off the bench. And, you know, Van der Beek, Van der Beek does, he does supply that and he, is, he, he would be an option. I just don't see him fitting into a three-man midfield. And I think if they try it, <laughs> I mean, if Ali tries it, 
<laughs> it's 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 almost suicidal, I think, from my from my point of view. So I I don't think that's the that's the game changer. I think Sancho is a different story. And yesterday was probably the first bit of encouraging developments that we've we've had in that for some weeks now uh, since there's been an impasse. It seems to me now, from what my understanding is, that though it's not final, final, final agreement, the the, the personal terms and the discussions with Sancho's camp are are not an obstacle anymore but there's still the huge obstacle of the fee itself which Dortmund are demanding 120 million for and and why I would never say that United would never pay that because uh, I'm not really in the business of making those kind of bold predictions um, I think that everything that you hear from inside the club is that there's a there's a genuine reluctance to to go that high and that that is a unrealistic an unrealistic asking price and valuation in this market I think Andrea Agnelli, the Juventus president this week, he was speaking at the ECA, of which United are a part of the European Clubs Association. He was saying that valuations are probably going to get depressed by about 20 to 30% in, because of COVID. And that's very much, I think, I think you could say that that's very much United's feeling about it as well. And they don't feel that 120 million is, is realistic. So there's a, lot of, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of negotiations to go on there and a long way to go. Fair dues. Uh, well, lastly, um, before we go, uh, shout for Player of the Year. Who's going to take the trophy off Kevin De Bruyne, which he only picked up, what, yesterday? He, he probably keeps keep it. it. Yeah, he yeah. keeps it, I think. Easy, so, easy answers. Easy although, answers. I mean, if Liverpool, if, Liverpool win, if Liverpool win the title, I think then, you know, obviously they won it this season. It was such a collective effort, but I, I feel like we're only going to see a, another level to Trent Alexander-Arnold's game. And maybe if Liverpool win the title, maybe it'd be him. But other than that, I think De Bruyne's the best player in the country. He has been for years, and and yeah, he's he's most likely to to reclaim retain his crown. Finally, after an hour, we all agree on something. Right, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. If you'd like to hear more about our live events, uh, as, such as this one, you can subscribe to Independent Premium for just £3 uh, for the first three months. Our next event is the US election. Ask the experts on the 28th of September with our US team to book a ticket. Make sure you're logged in to the Independent website and visit independent.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you, Miguel, Melissa, and Mark for joining me. And thank you all for watching and listening as well. If you're a new subscriber, please subscribe, well, a new listener, pardon me, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating as well so that it helps other people to find us. Also, be sure to follow Indie Sports and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's been going on. And we'll see you, see you again very, very soon. 